0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. We are continuing the Journey to Recovery series, and we're going to be talking about group and individual... Individual interventions for depression. Now, we're really going to be talking about things from a transdiagnostic perspective today. So a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is probably going to be applicable to, you know, more things than just depression. But they are definitely applicable to depression. So if you're doing a depression group, these are some different ideas of um, topics and techniques that you might cover. So we'll identify the common symptoms for anxiety and depression-based disorders because, I mean, there's a lot of similar symptoms there, hence the transdiagnostic approach. We'll learn how a positive change in one area or symptom can have positive effects on all symptom areas. So as we're going to go through and we go through each one of these symptoms, you're going to hear a lot of things kind of repeat themselves. And that's one of the take-home messages I really want my clients to get when we go through this activity or these activities is that there are certain things, like making sure you're getting enough quality sleep and good nutrition, that are going to have far-reaching effects, and lack of those things can have a, cause a variety of different symptoms. We're also going to explore the function of each symptom. Why does our body do it? Why does it make sense in some way, shape, or form the, that we feel the way we feel? We'll look at some potential causes of each of those symptoms, and, you know, we're still talking pretty meta-concept here. And we'll look at some interventions, and I call them simple-ish interventions, because what's simple for one person is not simple for another, and any change you make is going to require energy and effort. So when I teach this group or set set of groups, depending on, you know, how involved we get in them... I want clients to recognize that symptoms are your physical and emotional reactions to a threat. It's your body going, okay, we got to conserve energy here. We've got to protect ourselves for some reason. Symptoms that we have are typically unpleasant in one one way or another. And that's our body's way of kind of saying something's got to change. Something's got to give. They're designed to protect you. They are not bad or good, they just are. I mean, if somebody comes in with a presenting symptom, it may be unpleasant, but if you look at it from a dialectic perspective, while it's unpleasant, that symptom is motivating you to do something. So it's your body's way of going, hey, I want to survive, let's figure out how to change this situation so we can thrive. Instead of trying to make the symptom go away and just, you know, I want it to go away. We want to help people understand the function of the symptom because, you know, what causes a symptom, what the function of a symptom is for one person may be different than for another person. So if we're hitting every nail with a hammer or every hitting everything with a hammer, um, even though they're not nails, yeah, I messed up that analogy, but whatever, you know what I'm talking about, Um, then we're going to miss the boat. With something. So, we want to help clients understand what is the function of this symptom for me at this point in time. And we'll identify alternate, more helpful ways to deal with whatever's going on, whatever the threat is. And I use the term threat really broadly here. Poor nutrition is a threat because that means the body isn't getting the building blocks it needs to support survival, um, lack of quality sleep is a threat. We know that when people don't get enough sleep, their HPA axis, their threat response system, gets turned up a little bit because it's saying, um, okay, you're fatigued. That means you're vulnerable. So it keeps people on edge. When the HPA axis is turned up, it's also secreting cortisol, which causes the body to secrete glucose, which helps us stay awake more. So there are reasons behind what happens. We just have to understand what those reasons are. So some global activities we do when I'm trying to present these concepts, and it depends on the group that I've got. We can do, you know, just go through the presentation, which I find to be somewhat tedious. Uh, But you can also break people up into different groups. One of the activities I have is called symptom groups. So each symptom, for example, fatigue, another one's Difficulty concentrating. Another one is changes in sleeping habits. Uh, you know, break people up into groups based on DSM symptoms for that disorder. And then have them hypothesize what might be causing it, how that symptom might serve to protect them in some way or what it might be communicating, and what they can do differently to meet that same need, to keep themselves safe and healthy. Um, that that is different so they don't keep having this symptom because that symptom is a warning sign of some sort Uh, i usually have them start out by brainstorming themselves and then i go around and i pass out handouts to each group based on what symptom they have that give them the information that we're going to talk about and then they pull all this stuff together and present their symptom to the group itself i try to do a fair amount of interactive presentation because a lot of times people don't really know what they don't know until they try to teach something so when they start trying to explain it if they get stuck i can scaffold i can give them you know interjections to help them keep going i can present other ideas to help make sure that they've got the concept down another type of group i do if if I don't feel like doing symptom groups, is neurotransmitter groups. And this is kind of an interesting one. So you break people up in groups. You have dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, glutamate, GABA. Um, And, you know, generally I I stick with the – and did I say serotonin already? The big five. Um, And I break people up into those groups. And each group gets a handout, because I'm not expecting them to know this information, about what that neurotransmitter does. Why is it important for happiness? Why is an imbalance in that neurotransmitter? How does that contribute to depression? And what types of things support that neurotransmitter um, being imbalanced? You know, we remember we don't want to necessarily increase everything, we want everything to maintain its natural balance um, GABA and glutamate for example have to maintain in a balance if you think of glutamate as the hot water and GABA as the cold water and We want a warm bath You know when you get stressed out when there's something to be fight in the fight-or-flight mode of you're gonna have an increase in Glutamate you're gonna get hotter when it's time to relax and go to bed and chill out You're gonna need more GABA, which is the cold water. So it's not necessarily about increasing something you know, if you've got too much glutamate already, you may need to bring your GABA up a little bit. So, you know, I want people to recognize how they can balance, naturally balance their neurotransmitters. Um, MEEPS, wellness groups. Now, this is another fun set of groups. I like this one because it's not technical like the neurotransmitter groups, but I have some people that are really interested in, because they're taking a lot of meds or whatever, they're really interested in understanding the basics, you know, high-level concepts about the neurotransmitters. But anyway, your meeps groups, um, that stands for mental, emotional, environmental, physical, and social. So again, you can either divide people up in groups or you can put flip chart papers around the room for each area of wellness, if you will. And then... In that group, they talk about different things that could contribute to depression and different things that can contribute to healing depression. Um, And then they present that, again, to the group as a whole at the end. So it breaks up group a little bit. I'm able to go around and talk to people. Um, I usually set it up so I present what we're going to be doing first five minutes. They have... 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes in group, and then they present for about 20 minutes, and then the last 10 or 15 minutes, we talk about um, what everybody got from it and how these different things could apply, so we have more of an interactive discussion. The final one, and it takes a little, um, uh, and an answer to your question, Patricia, each group has the um, is assigned a neurotransmitter. And remember, I said I, I provide the handouts for the, for the groups so they know what the neurotransmitter does because I'm not expecting them to have, have, you know, studied ahead of time. Heck, I don't even expect my students to have studied ahead of time when I teach this in uh, intro psych. So, you know, making sure that people have the resources they need in order to really get the most out of these groups is really important. Case studies is the final type of global activity that I do, Um, and obviously, it's going to be a generic case study on Sally Sue and Jim Bob and Tina Marie and whomever else. I don't know why all my people have two names, but whatever. I guess it's a Southern thing. Uh, But I encourage people to look at their individual case study, and again, we break up into groups, um, and... Try to figure out, reading this, what do you think might be causing this person's depression? Or what do you think might be increasing this person's depression? What do you think might help this person feel better? So I'm presenting them with a case study that includes a biopsychosocial assessment um, and information about you know, what was going on before the problem started, the course of the disorder, and current symptoms. So they can look through it. And obviously, the case studies I present them are not super technical. I want to make sure that the salient points really stand out. But I also want to make sure in these case studies that I highlight more than just cognitive distortions or relationship problems. You know, I want them to see that, you know, these depressive symptoms can be caused by a lot of things from low thyroid, to polycystic ovarian syndrome, to lack of sleep, you know, let's look at what might be causing this for each person. So they recognize that even though we all have depression, you know, if we're doing a depression group, um, every single person in that room probably has slightly different symptoms. And those symptoms may be caused by slightly different things. So we don't want to treat depression the same for every single person in the room or we're going to fail miserably. So we want it to be really individualized based on that client's presenting symptoms and what is causing those symptoms. Okay. So so symptom number one, lack of pleasure. This is apathy and lack of pleasure in most things, most days for a period of at least two weeks. Okay. So if we're doing this as a general group and I'm presenting it to people, you know, and that's how we're going to do it here. Yeah, it's kind of boring, but we go through it. Uh, it's caused by a neurochemical imbalance. You know, our, our sense of pleasure is triggered when we have an increase in our excitatory neurochemicals, our glutamate or n- our norepinephrine and our dopamine. Dopamine's our pleasure chemical. So if we ain't got that going through our brains, what's the reason? So I want them to hypothesize, and I generally don't show the causes. You know, I want them to speculate about what might cause that. But if they get stuck, you know, I'll, I'll throw out one and I'll say, okay, lack of quality sleep. How can that keep you from feeling pleasure? And I mean, most of us, when we've been sleep deprived because, you know, you've had a sinus infection or been working 20 hour days or whatever it is, um, you know, it's, it's hard to get excited about much of anything, partly because you're exhausted. Um, but we do start to look at, okay, lack of quality of sleep. It's hard to feel happy and get all excited about stuff when we're just, we're barely getting by. We're dragging um, and our body's devoting its scarce resources to keeping our immune system up and digestion and that sort of stuff. Excessive stress. Pleasure is when dopamine and norepinephrine are released. Um, And that's when we feel excited. When people have too much stress, they've got norepinephrine and glutamate and not as much dopamine um, because the body is saying, no, I don't want to do that again. So it's not going to secrete the pleasure chemical. Too much stress um, can keep people from feeling, you know, happy. And, And if you think about your stress response system, You know, your HPA axis secretes adrenaline and cortisol and, you know, all those other excitatory neurochemicals to help you fight or flee. It's not going to be dumping dopamine because dopamine is the, let's do that again, neurochemical, for lack of a better term. Drug or medication use can cause lack of pleasure. There are a lot of medications that can impact dopamine levels. And hormone imbalances, including thyroid problems, can also impact neurotransmitters. And it's not just dopamine. But again, think about lack of pleasure. I mean, that's a really generic term that people use. It's just when they feel blah. And and thyroid problems can contribute to that. But even deeper than this, I want people to think, okay, we know that these things can cause a sense of a lack of pleasure but what is causing these causing the causes for you so why do you have a lack of quality sleep you know it's not sufficient to go to say well i'm not getting enough quality sleep need to get more well yeah but how you know if you knew how to do that or you know if the solution was easy you'd probably already be doing it so let's look at what's contributing to your lack of sleep is it pain is it stress is it medications is it caffeine is it you know, the dog that has fleas and he's biting himself all night long. What is it? Excessive stress. Well, most people can look back and go, okay, I see where all these stressors are and let me look and try to evaluate which ones I have to deal with right now and which ones I just need to let go. Because a lot of times we take on too much stuff. Drug or medication use, you know, did the symptoms start before you started taking this medication? If not might be something to talk with your doctor about, or if you're taking an over-the-counter supplement, um, something to to think about doing an A-B test and quitting for a little while. Hormone imbalances, including thyroid problems. Only a doctor can do the blood test to tell whether this exists or not. But there are so many people who have Inadequate levels of certain hormones, and that's not necessarily meaning they need to go on hormone replacement therapy or anything. There are a lot of things like getting enough sleep and proper nutrition and getting exercise that can be done to help balance and regulate hormones naturally. Not so much with the thyroid, but um, hypothyroid is an increasing problem in the U.S. So, what are the causes? Um, We also have the HPA axis, lack of pleasure, you know, your HPA axis is saying, we're not really interested in fun right now. We're interested in fight or flee. We're interested in survival. So the HPA axis secretes cortisol, which increases norepinephrine and glutamate. So focus and fight, if you will. Reductions in estrogen and testosterone, your sex hormones go down. So lack of pleasure, again, if your sex hormones are down, the libido is also going to be in the crapper. when estrogen and, ser- and testosterone are low, it means that serotonin is less available. Oh, boy. Well, serotonin helps regulate anxiety. When And when people are stressed out for too long and anxious for too long, their body goes into that state of learned helplessness where they start feeling depressed. The body goes, you know what? Been trying to fight this for too long. I ain't winning. I give up. And... They actually have seen changes in brain activity after prolonged exposure to certain stressors that show that sort of learned helplessness reaction. Um, But also, okay, so less sex hormones means less available serotonin. Less available serotonin means less available melatonin, which is the hormone that helps us get sleepy. When we have impaired sleep, our body thinks we're under stress for some reason, It increases cortisol, keeps the HPA axis revved, and we go through this cycle again. So we need to break the cycle somewhere. Lack of pleasure is your body's way of signaling there may be a problem. Conserving those excitatory neurotransmitters, it's conserving energy for a real crisis. But unfortunately, those excitatory neurotransmitters like norepinephrine and glutamate that rev us up, You know, when you add dopamine to the mix, they're like, "Woo!" You know, that's your happiness. Uh, But when you don't have dopamine in there, that's you know, stress and anxiety. When you add adrenaline, Um, but in any event, your body is going. I need to hold on to this energy, so we're not going to waste it, quote unquote, waste it on you know, happiness and excitement and exhilaration. We're just going to sit here and hold on to this until there's a big problem. When we feel this way. Nobody wants to feel this way for long. So in a way, our body is forcing us to address whatever imbalance is there so we can start feeling a little bit better. I encourage people to use a solution-focused approach to coping with their symptoms. And sometimes people are willing to work on one thing or not another, or one symptom is more prominent or problematic for them than another. Fine. You know, I tell them that depression, in my mind, is like, a woven blanket, a really heavy woven blanket, and it's over your head. You know, you're just, it's almost oppressive. But no matter where you start pulling a string on that woven blanket, eventually the whole daggum thing's going to unravel. So just start doing something, and you're going to feel that blanket start to lighten. You're going to feel that oppressive feeling start to lighten. So anyway, I encourage people to think back over the last two Few times when they've been depressed or just haven't found pleasure in anything, even if it was just for a few hours. I don't want people to um, really get stuck, if you will, um, trying to think about, okay, when was the last time I was really truly clinically depressed? When we think back over, you know, times when we've had, we've been just really down for an afternoon or for a day, what did you do to help yourself feel better? You know, some people say, I just went to bed and I told myself, you know what, tomorrow's a new day. I'm just going to start over again. Reboot, if you will. That works for some people. And if you can do that for one day, you know, sometimes you wake up the next morning and you can you can start fresh, if you will. When it doesn't work is when people just continue to go to bed and hope when they wake up, things will get better. They wake up, things are not better. They go back to bed. And it's just this constant state of waking up lethargy and going back to sleep. So we brainstorm. What things do you do to help yourself feel better and find pleasure? Sometimes you've got to bring pleasure in. Just because you don't have misery doesn't mean you're necessarily happy. And we talk about yin and yang in when we talk about um, uh, this aspect because you can have too much stress. Or you can have an average amount of stress, but not enough pleasure, and you want them to be balanced. So sometimes it's about adding the pleasure into your life. So what do you do? What makes the depression or lack of pleasure worse? You know, for some of us, sitting in a dark room, watching TV or something, actually makes it worse because we feel more stagnant. Um, So asking people to think about what have you done? when you felt like this that really didn't help you feel any better. So they know what's on their list that they probably should try to avoid doing. What can you do to prevent triggering your depression or lack of pleasure? So I want people to think back to are there certain things that actually trigger this feeling, trigger this symptom for them. And it could be taking on too many projects at work. It could be impending holidays, um, you know, whatever it is for them. But I want them to start thinking about what their triggers are and ways they can intervene. So, simple interventions. Don't expect exhilaration, but try to do some things that make you mildly happy. So, activities that you can do in groups the alphabet activity, you know, it's one of my favorites. You go around the room and everybody says something that starts with their letter of the alphabet. So the first person is A, and they say, you know, applesauce. I don't know. Um, The next person is B, um, balloons make them happy. The next person is C, cat. Their cat makes them happy. What Go through it, through the alphabet, and have people really think creatively about things that Bring a smile to their face. Another thing you can do is have people create a happiness box and just a little pencil box or envelope for that matter, if they don't want a pencil box, uh, that has slips of paper in it that remind them of things that they like to do that make them happy. Because when you're feeling blue, when you're feeling blah, it's really hard to get excited and go, okay, what can I do that'll make me happy? You know, you're just like, leave me alone. (laughs) i don 't I don't feel like doing anything, so a happiness box if it 's there, it will present those concepts for the person and they can just reach in and pull out one slip and decide what to do, or they can um, you know just start going through the box they can have a another type of happiness box that has mementos that makes them that make them smile um, pictures awards anything that makes them smile so they, ca- they can go through it. Encourage people to make a weekly appointment with themselves to schedule in happiness. And I know it sounds stupid, but it's really important because we get so caught up in our day-to-day grind that we forget to add in happy. We're just waking up, eating breakfast, going to work, coming home, eating dinner, going to sleep, repeat. And it's very monotonous. Um, So encourage people to at least a weekly appointment, preferably a daily one. But, you know, I'm trying to be realistic here. It can be 15 minutes. It doesn't have to be half a day. Um, encourage people to get plenty of sleep to stabilize their circadian rhythms and their sleep, wake, eat rhythms. So you can see just by the name or the alternate name of circadian rhythms how when you get your sleep out of whack, it's going to make it difficult, more difficult to get quality sleep. It's going to make it more difficult to be awake and it's gonna make it more difficult and alter your eating patterns cause you're not sure when you're hungry and when you're full. Um, so circadian rhythms, super important. Encourage people to think back to a time when they didn't feel this way and have them do MEEPS sheets. My people just get used to the acronym MEEPS. But on each sheet, they identify what was different when I didn't feel this way. What was different mentally? What was different emotionally? What was I doing that made myself happy? What was different environmentally? You know, maybe you lived somewhere else. Maybe it was spring instead of the middle of winter when the days are shorter and less sunlight. Um, what was different physically? You know, did you have less pain? Were you taking different supplements? What was going on? Um, and what was different socially? And sometimes they may go through and some things on, in, in different areas weren't any different at all. And that's cool. But I want people to really go through on a granular level and think what was different when I was happy. And then they can go back through that those sheets and ask themselves the similar question. What changed when I started feeling depressed? Or that triggered me to start feeling depressed? Maybe their best friend moved away. Or, you know, they changed jobs and they really don't like this new job or, or whatever it is. So we want to start looking at that. Um, another thing that can change, and I don't know whether you put it in, I guess you'd put it in an environment, if people are on shift work and their shift changes, oh boy, that messes with circadian rhythms and can throw people for a big loop. And encourage people to remember that depression is a natural part of the grief process and very normal after any kind of trauma. So they need to be compassionate with themselves if that might be causing their lack of pleasure. If they experienced a trauma that was a rush, a gush of excitatory neurotransmitters, fight or flight. They, they probably were in a state where they were revved up for a while. Maybe it was a couple of days. Maybe it was a couple of weeks. So they may need to be compassionate with themselves and think, you know what? I need time to rest and recharge because I just ain't got it in me right now. Eating behaviors, eating too much or loss of appetite. Circadian rhythms um, help your body know when to secrete um, ghrelin and leptin, so you know when you're hungry, when you're supposed to, when you're, when you're full. Our eating signals are actually cor- correspond to certain hormone fluctuations throughout the day. So if your hormone fluctuations, if your circadian rhythms are out of whack, then you're not going to be, you're gonna, not going to really know when you're hungry. You know, most of us... If we get on a schedule, we know about when it's time to eat lunch because our stomach starts going, it's lunchtime. That's a sign that your circadian rhythms are relatively well synced. So what causes changes in eating behaviors? Well, stomach flu, but we're going to assume that's not the case. An imbalance in brain chemicals that help you feel motivated to eat, such as norepinephrine and serotonin. When we... Eat too much, especially high-fat, high-carbohydrate foods. Those foods cause the brain to release serotonin and dopamine. So serotonin is calming. Dopamine is your pleasure chemical. Makes sense that, you know, if one or more of those is low for some reason, you may be trying to fill the gap or self-medicate, if you want to use that word, with food. There are five primary causes of overeating. Now, there's lots of causes, but five primary that I tried to lump together. Your body needing the building blocks. Sometimes we crave foods, you know, and this is obviously more with overeating. Sometimes we crave foods um, that our body needs to make the neurochemicals and make Whatever it needs to rebuild itself. So, people may tend to overindulge. I know every once in a while I will just get this craving. I'm like, I have got to have red meat. And generally, I don't eat meat at all. So, you know, I try to, try to listen to myself when, when that happens um, because my body's trying to tell me something because that's just not something I usually crave. Encourage people to keep a food diary. And they can do it on their mobile device. I recommend they do it on their mobile device. Um, Spark people. It's a little cumbersome, but it's one of the better apps for breaking down the nutrients that you're getting in. So you can look and see if there are particular nutrients that you are regularly not getting enough of, like zinc or magnesium. Low serotonin can cause people to overeat because they are, you know, craving that serotonin release. But low serotonin also corresponds with high anxiety, and sometimes when people have high anxiety, they just can't eat at all because their stomach's tied up in knots. So it could go either way. Circadian rhythms, we already talked about this. In order to monitor your circadian rhythms, um, people can do energy monitoring, which is a really... general way of monitoring your circadian rhythms. When do you have highest levels of energy? When is your energy lowest? It should be highest at the beginning of the day, not necessarily when you first wake up, but at the beginning of the day. It should dip a little bit after lunch, come back up, and then it should gradually decline after that until bedtime, in theory. So have people monitor their energy levels. And if they find that they're waking up at 8 o'clock at night, but they can't, get jump-started throughout the day, um, then that's something that they may want to consider. Another thing that they can look at is um, getting a uh, fitness monitor that shows them when they're sleeping, because if it shows that they're getting the, the brunt of their deep sleep at the beginning of their sleep cycle, and then they're getting progressively lighter sleep throughout, that's the way it's supposed to be. If their sleep is all over the place, that may indicate that their circadian rhythms are at least a little bit out of whack. Um, habit and self-soothing, sometimes we just eat because it's what we do. When you're watching a movie, you eat popcorn. When, you, when it's dinner time, you eat. You don't question whether you're hungry or not. So again, if you have people keep a food diary that indicates what they're eating, how much they're eating, but also why they're eating, you know, have them ask the question. It doesn't necessarily mean they don't eat even if they uh, aren't hungry or whatever, it just means they're becoming more aware of why they're eating. And thyroid issues can also cause people to eat too much or too little. Um, So again, get that physical in there. Thyroid issues, hormone issues are going to continue to come up as our nutrition and and sleep issues. So it's important to work with a physician to rule out any of these biological causes because taking an antidepressant or talk therapy ain't going to help any of those things. And if those are the primary things causing the neurochemical imbalance, then we're going to be really struggling to help that person reach maximal gains. Um, in response to what Lacey asked about, the research on gut health and mental health, our gut, well, 80% of our serotonin is in our gut, but, you know, that's not as much responsible for our mood as it is for other things. Serotonin is responsible for a ton of stuff. Um, and and you can look, I think it's 17 different functions in your body that serotonin is responsible for, including things like gastric motility and heart rate and, and things like that. So we do want to be aware of what... Um, what's going on in our body. Since neurotransmitters are made from the foods we eat, if we're not able to ingest, digest, and absorb the foods that we eat, we're not going to be able to give the body the building blocks it needs to make the neurotransmitters it needs to help us feel happy or even scared for that matter. Um, So I think there is a lot of truth in the fact that Our whole body machine has to be healthy you know think about your car Um, you know if your gas line is functioning well and you've got oil I don't know much about cars but I do know that if you put sugar in the gas tank it ain't gonna work so good Um, and things are gonna start getting clogged up or if you run it even with without sugar but with crappy gas and things start to get clogged up and gooky. I said I didn't know much about cars, um, then it's not going to run as efficiently because it's keeping the gas from efficiently getting through the system. Same sort of thing with the nutrients. We need to make sure that our body can make what it needs to keep all systems functioning, um, endocrine as well as, you know, neurotransmitters and everything else. Okay, so when we talk about eating behaviors, I ask people how do they cope? In the past, when they have not had an appetite or they've been eating to self-soothe, how do you deal with it? Um, and and a, a lot of people that I work with um, tend to eat to self-soothe. There's less of the just no appetite. But there is a portion of people with no appetite. So you want to cover both, both ends of the spectrum and say, what do you do? You need to get minimal nutrition, but you also want to get you know, you don't want to eat too much, but you want to get good nutritious foods in there. So what can you do? How can you make sure you're eating a generally healthy diet and making sure your body has the building blocks it needs? And that comes down to being aware of what you eat. Food diaries are great. You know, I I know people don't like to keep them, um, but it does really provide a lot of insight. What can you do to ensure you're eating due to hunger and not distress? You know, Ask people this. If they typically eat to self-soothe or eat out of emotions when they're stressed out or when they're tired or when they're whatever, what can they do? Uh, make sure they know what foods they generally eat to self-soothe. So if they're cramming down those chocolate chip cookies, they know, you know, this might be a clue that something, something else is going on. What can you do to prevent non-hunger eating? And there's a lot of things people can do. Uh, brushing your teeth right after a meal. Mint, which is, I guess, one of the reasons they use it for toothpaste, um, is actually an appetite suppressant. So p- people typically aren't as hungry if they brush their teeth right away. In our house, we clean up the kitchen because once the kitchen's clean, I don't want to mess it up again. I don't like coming down to a, to a, to, to a dirty kitchen in the morning. Um, getting out. You know, instead of sitting around the house or c- continuing to sit around the table, getting out away from the kitchen, away from the food, doing something um, can also prevent non-hungry eating. Um, simplest intervention, simplish interventions. Stop consuming caffeine at least eight hours before bed. Easier said than done, I recognize, but encourage clients to be aware of how their caffeine in- intake impacts their mood. Drink enough water. Um, When we are dehydrated, a lot of times our body will actually start craving salty foods in order to, or sugary foods, in order to get us to eat those which will make us drink water to compensate. It's kind of a weird system. Um, Or you'll start craving something like watermelon or iceberg lettuce. Either way. Try to have three colors on your plate at every meal. This is a fun activity to do, um, especially you know, if it's not too close to dinner time and people are just starving anyway. Uh, put sheets around the room with the colors yellow, red, and then one for bl- blue, black, and purple. Green, orange, white, and brown. And then divide the paper in half. And on one side, it's breakfast. And on the other side, it's lunch and dinner. Because some things, like broccoli, you're probably just not going to eat for breakfast. And have people identify foods of each color that they might eat at each meal. So yellow can be bananas, red can be um, cranberries, blueberries, um, blackberries, you know there's a lot of fruits and berries that go well in breakfast. Some people will actually use black rice and cook it into like a porridge for breakfast. So, you know, that might go in there too. But encouraging people to get creative with the different foods that they eat so they have those three colors. Not only does it increase the um, antioxidants and help people stay healthier, it also provides a broader array of different micronutrients. And three colors on a plate actually tricks your brain into feeling full faster than if you're eating a plate that's like all one color. For whatever reason, when our brain sees a plate that's like all whites and browns, it doesn't register as much food as if it sees multiple colors. Interesting little tidbit. Eat foods you enjoy, but in moderation. If you feel deprived, you're probably going to tend to binge on things. Um, so, Eating foods you enjoy, whether it's chocolate or pizza, I love pizza, um, and I justify it by saying it's got vegetables on it, it's got dairy on it, it's got fruit in the form of tomatoes, it's got grains in it, and, you know, it's got those fats, so I can digest and, and metabolize the fat-soluble vitamins. I've justified pizza really well to myself. Um, but anyway, you want to do it in moderation. You don't want to eat a whole pizza. Um, But if that's going to help you feel a little happier, if you want to reward yourself, then you know, okay. Use a plate. Don't eat out of the bag. Get enough sleep. (laughs) Sleep again, I know. So you're not eating to stay awake. When we eat, it increases our blood sugar. So sometimes people eat because they think, well, I'm feeling really sleepy. If I have something to eat, it'll wake me up. But eating also triggers the rest and digest response in our brain. Once we get a full belly, our body says, okay, we need to slow everything else down so I can divert energy to processing that food. So eating can kind of bite you in the butt if you're trying to stay awake. Encourage people to experiment with essential oils. Some, like grapefruit, um, will decrease appetite. Others will increase appetite. Some... um, like clary sage can decrease stress there are some that can decrease cravings you need to do a little research on it Um, and two different activities i've done with essential oils i've done test sniff where i've had cotton balls in little ziploc bags of various essential oils and people are not applying this at all they're sniffing it but if you've got clients who are sensitive to smells um, that can be no-go for a group Uh, when we do the test sniff I have people sniff the bag and say you know how does that make you feel do you like that smell Um, and so they can start figuring out the ones they like because generally ones that are going to work with our chemistry are ones that we like and ones that are, are triggering something we don't need we're gonna shy away from it they're gonna feel too strong or too powerful so test sniff is one thing or you can do handout presentations, and I'll print out or I'll get handouts from essential oil companies on different essential oils, and I will provide each group with a handout on a different essential oil, and they will read about it, they will learn about it, and then they will present their information that they learned about that particular essential oil to the group. Um, <clears throat> if you just can't stomach eating so for people who you know their their stomachs all tied up their serotonin's too low they're just they're anxious and depressed all at the same time sometimes they may need to explore a meal replacement to make sure they're getting the basic nutrients they need but that would have to be a decision between them and their doctor sleeping behaviors we all know in depression sleeping changes some people sleep all the time some people have insomnia This can indicate stress, so your HPA axis is activated, poor sleep habits, you know, some of us just, especially if you're depressed, um, you may stay in a dark room all day long, so your circadian rhythms get out of whack, you may stay up trying to distract yourself, you know, playing on the internet or something, and just never get to sleep, whatever it is. Pain. Whether it's chronic pain or pain because the ergonomics in your bed are bad. Hormone or neurochemical imbalances, you know, they can get you to sweat all night long. Um, They can make it harder, you know, if you don't have enough serotonin or don't have enough melatonin, it can make it harder for you to get to sleep. Allergies and apnea, you know, if you're stopping breathing, it's going to keep you from getting good quality sleep. And, And poor nutrition because the nutrition provides the building blocks for the serotonin, which is used to make the melatonin. So I know it starts sounding like a broken record, but the good thing is when people start hearing that, they're like, yeah, 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 sleep again or nutrition again. I'm like, yeah, see how many different things, symptoms that poor nutrition can cause. And, you know, most people are willing to tweak their nutrition. They're not wanting to go, you know, crazy gangbusters. I'm not asking them to, I'm asking them to be sensible. And think about changes they can make to be a little bit happier and healthier. Insomnia can indicate activated stress response, pain making it difficult to sleep, or insufficient melatonin or or serotonin. When you're not getting enough sleep, you can't recharge as efficiently, so you're more tired and your body's going, I I really need that deep sleep, so you crawl back in bed, but since your circadian rhythms are out of whack, it's not going to let you necessarily get into that deep, deep sleep. So you're going to wake up. You're going to feel foggy. You know, it's a bad cycle. When you're getting too much sleep, your body doesn't secrete melatonin at the right times, leading to poor quality sleep and feeling exhausted. Uh, When you can't sleep because you're stressed, because your threat response system is activated, your body is doing you a favor. It thinks you're vulnerable for some reason. You know, whether it's you're vulnerable to losing your job or, you know, you're getting ready to break up with somebody or you think you're going to be alone forever or whatever it is that's causing that person stress, they are feeling vulnerable in some way. So their stress response system is staying activated going, dude, you got to do something about this. So how you can cope. Encourage people to think about what they usually do to help themselves sleep when they can't Um, create a good sleep routine that involves the same two or three activities every night. It doesn't have to be a drawn out process, but, you know, eat dinner, um, take a shower, brush your teeth, read a book, you know, whatever it is that you do that cues your body that, hey, it's time to start winding down. And encourage them to keep a track of anything that wakes them up in the night, from the neighbor's stereo to the car alarm outside to dogs, coughing, allergies, a snoring spouse, um, or sleep apnea. Interventions encourage people to rule out any medical issues, especially thyroid and hormone imbalances, chronic pain, and apnea that are keeping them from getting good sleep. A lot of people don't even realize that they've got apnea or that they snore that bad. Um, Again, reduce or eliminate caffeine and stimulants eight hours before bed. Keep a notepad by their bed to write down things they need to remember instead of tossing them around in, in their head all night long. Use progressive muscular relaxation to help your body relax. And that's going, I usually go from top to bottom. Tensing and relaxing the muscles and every time you relax you feel the stress leave those muscles until you get all the way down to your toes um, And quite honestly most nights. I don't make it all the way down to my toes before I'm asleep So it's a good thing But there are scripts online and on YouTube that people can um, download or, or listen to as they're going to sleep that walk them through progressive muscular relaxation and sometimes it helps just to hear that other voice Encourage people to develop a stress management relaxation plan. Have them use mindfulness exercises. And you might be thinking, well, mindfulness may keep them in the present moment and activated. What I mean by that is focus on one thing. You know, if they can close their eyes and focus on one thing or focus on one thing in the room and just think about that. It's almost like counting sheep, but not. Don't take long naps during the day. If you get a nap that's longer than 45 minutes, it's going to mess up your circadian rhythms for that night. And adjust lights for circadian rhythms. Even if you're, or especially if you're in a season where you've got shorter days, you need that 14 to 16 hours of bright light, daylight. And then two to three hours before bed. You need the lights to go way down, so like 25-watt yellow bulbs or golden bulbs um, are really helpful, and cutting out the blue light two hours before bed. When people have low energy, it can be from lack of sleep, lack of motivation. Now, this is a new one. Um, When we just have low energy, we're just, again, blah. Um, It can be because we just don't have motivation to do anything. We're feeling very hopeless and helpless. Lack of movement a body in motion tends to stay in motion a body at rest tends to stay at rest if you've been sitting on the couch for a week You may think oh get up really no, you know, but once you get up and get moving it's easier So getting through that inertia is really important fear of failure or rejection some people get stuck cognitively and physically in in a position because they're afraid to try. They're afraid to get up and do anything. Poor nutrition and thyroid and hormone imbalances. A lot of times low energy is the result of the body devoting scarce resources to rebuilding and functioning. It's going, you know, I don't have the energy to to deal with this right now. I've got to rest and repair because you ain't been getting enough sleep. So the body may be going, I'm holding on to those excitatory neurochemicals, even the happy ones, because I need to rebuild. Encourage people to think what besides caffeine helps them get energy. I encourage people to start their day off in a brightly lit room, um, preferably outside or, you know, next to a a sunny window. It's, It's obviously better to get it directly from the sun. Have them think about what drains their energy mentally, emotionally, environmentally, physically, and socially. When they felt lethargic and just stuck and like they were carrying a 50-pound rucksack in the past, how did they help themselves feel better? How did they get energy? And a lot of times the answer comes down to a couple of things. Get moving because once you get moving, kind of like when you start on a bike you know those first couple pedals it's just like oh my gosh but once you get your momentum going it's a lot easier to pedal um so encouraging people to get through that inertia period um and and stabilize their circadian rhythms simpleish interventions get up and move around try doing 15 and that means whatever it is you know think I should go outside and walk around or i should clean the house or i should i go out and weed that's just my thing um i get up and i go out and weed for 15 minutes and if i'm still feeling like i've got that rucksack on my back then i allow myself to go sit back down but most of the time once i get up and out i feel good and before i know it two hours have passed stay hydrated dehydration leads to low energy focus on stabilizing circadian rhythms Stay off that stimulant roller coaster. Increase motivating chemicals by having some successes. When you're having some successes, when you're having some release of dopamine and, and positive chemicals, people tend to have a little bit more energy and motivation to do the next thing. Get an accountability buddy. Sometimes you need somebody to grab your hand and go, come on, we're going, let's, let's get off the couch, in order to get you through that inertia. And have people identify any fear or depressive thoughts that may be dampening their motivation or draining their energy and deal with them. You know, if they're constantly worried about this, that, or the other thing, they're going to probably feel exhausted because worry takes a lot of energy. So if they can devote that energy to something besides just stewing on worry, that's going to free up a lot. Agitation you know a lot of people when they're depressed don't feel agitated but there are a lot of people who have concurrent anxiety and agitation so i do go over this one can be caused by high levels of anxiety stimulants that they're using to self-medicate their depression if they're just living on caffeine and espresso and or unstable blood sugar um, or poor nutrition if your blood sugar gets low then you may start to feel really shaky likewise when your blood sugar gets really high you may start to feel shaky. Um, So people who have great fluctuations there can feel shaky, which can make them feel nervous and agitated. When you're sped up, your body is likely detecting a threat of some sort, whether it's a real threat or it's chemically or cognitively induced. So again, solution-focused. When they feel driven or anxious... How have they been able to get it under control? Do they call a friend? Do they journal? Do they go on a run? What is it that they do? And when you're feeling this way, what can you do to be kind to yourself? When we're feeling agitated, we typically tend to not be the most pleasant people to be around. So when you're feeling agitated, what can you do to be kind to yourself so, you know, you can improve your environment and be nice to others so they can be nice to you? Simplish interventions, reduce anxiety by addressing unhelpful thoughts, using distress tolerance skills to feel the anxiety, accept it is what it is, and let it pass. Surfing the wave, as we uh, urge surfing. Um, We've talked about that before. Practice good time management so you don't feel pressured. If you're taking on too much stuff, then it's going to increase your stress, which could increase feelings of being overwhelmed and hopeless and helpless and... Anxious, make a choice not to let anxiety run your life, and you're like, Yeah, right, easier said than done. Yeah, it is. However, cognitively, people do have the ability when they start feeling anxious to go, You know what? No, I am going to push that away for right now because I'm dealing with this other thing over here. Pay attention and reduce how many stimulants you're taking, including caffeine, nicotine. Diet pills, decongestants, and pre-workout supplements for any of your fitness um, people. And make sure that they're, they're stabilizing their nutrition. When people have trouble concentrating, their neurotransmitters, hormones, or blood sugar, or lack of sleep, poor nutrition, or excess stress could be causing it. People also may have feelings of helplessness causing them to second-guess themselves. So they have difficulty concentrating. They've got monkey mind because they're, they're anxious about all these other things. When you're having difficulty concentrating, concentration is a luxury. So when you're having difficulty concentrating, your body may be going, um, I'm trying to fight or flee right here. We're not going to be worried about solving the world's problems. Uh, so it indicates that there may be underlying anxiety and stress uh, from somewhere encourage people to identify what helps them focus when they can't concentrate like breaking things down into small chunks working in the morning i know for me my energy is highest in the morning and if i'm having difficulty concentrating i know that i need to get the bulk of my work done before about noon encourage people to sharpen the saw um, as, as stephen covey says be kind to themselves we do need to rest and relax in order to be as sharp as we can be. We need to have some downtime where we can clear our head and rebalance. Make sure you're eating healthfully, stay hydrated, get adequate sleep, and take a 10 to 20-minute power nap. Remember, not longer than 45 minutes after lunch. Research has shown that a nap after lunch increases focus chemicals up to 200%. Interesting. Hopelessness and helplessness can be caused by a variety of things, but basically, it's your body going, I give up. I I can't do this anymore. Um, It can be caused by lack of sleep, being exhausted, being overwhelmed, negative thinking patterns, chronic pain, and even use of depressant-type medications like opiates that really drain people's energy and can make them feel um, exhausted. It's a signal that something's wrong. So we want people to think, how do I help myself feel empowered? If I'm feeling hopeless, how do I garner hope? If I'm feeling helpless, where do I have power? What things do I have control over? What are my goals and what can I do right now to start achieving my goals? Because sometimes we're just stuck in this quicksand of hopelessness and helplessness and we can't see the forest for the trees. So if somebody says, okay, focus on this one thing over here, focus on this goal, What can you do to start achieving that? Then that's kind of like that rope that they can grab onto to start pulling themselves out of the quicksand. And what are three things you can do today to start moving toward recovery or happiness again? Encourage people to identify things that give them hope or make them happy and do one of those every day. Get adequate sleep, drink at least eight hours, eight hours, eight glasses of water, and Encourage them to talk with a friend and create a plan to get unstuck because, again, sometimes you need a friend holding that rope that you're grabbing onto to get out of that quicksand in order to, you know, move forward. You need the encouraging words and the direction from someone who's not feeling completely overwhelmed. Most depressive symptoms are caused by changes in neurochemistry. That's just, you know, we feel our feelings because our brain chemicals are doing something to protect us. These changes can be caused by emotional upset that triggers the HPA axis, unhelpful or unpleasant thoughts that trigger the HPA axis, pain, poor quality sleep, poor nutrition, medication side effects, a lack of pleasure, behaviors that alter brain chemistry, such as anything that causes dopamine surges like bungee jumping, gambling, sex, or viewing pornography. Coping with depression requires an understanding of what triggers that symptom for that person. Is it lack of sleep? Is it stress? Is it pain? Is it all of the above? We need to understand what triggers it for that person. What has helped them in the past to prevent or cope with that symptom? That gives us a clue at what might be triggering it now. And that also helps us identify the function of the symptom in order to prevent the need. So if poor nutrition triggers the symptom, and eating a healthier diet helped prevent it in the past, then we may recognize that the symptom that they're having is their body's way of going, hello, you need to eat a little bit better. So, you know, they know what they need to do. Think of your body as as trying to give you clues all the time, and think of it as a, um, I don't know, experiment, if you will. Okay, Um, one person wanted me to review the neurotransmitters. Um, Dopamine is your pleasure chemical, and it also helps with concentration and learning. Each one of these neurochemicals does a lot of things, but um, hitting the highlights. Dopamine is um, concentration, learning, and pleasure. Serotonin is responsible for um, helping us feel less depressed, helping us feel less anxious, Um, It's broken down to help make melatonin. It's also um, responsible in in some degree for our level of pain perception. Um, Norepinephrine is our focus and concentration chemical. It's excitatory. It helps us kind of wake up and pay attention. Glutamate is an excitatory neurochemical that gives us our get up and go. It's broken down to make GABA, which is our natural... Our body's kind of natural volume. So, and, and GABA is the other one. So those are the ones that I usually focus on. You can talk about acetylcholine, but that gets that gets kind of muddy in the waters. The big five are the ones we usually talk about in group. Yes. Um, encourage people to consider everything they're putting in their body. James pointed out alcohol is a depressant. And interestingly enough, it also causes anxiety. Um, its initial effects when you are intoxicated are depressant effects, so it can slow breathing and make apnea worse. Um, and as it wears off, um, the body can't, it wears off faster than the body can replace that depressant effect with GABA. So people s- experience anxiety, um, hypertension, other things when they are detoxing or when the alcohol is leaving their system, which leads a lot of people to drink some more to kind of make the feeling go away. So it is important to recognize that anything you put in your body can have um, emotional, if you will, can trigger feelings. MEEPS, um, let's see, let's go back here. MEEPS are mental, emotional, environmental, physical, and social. Glutamate is... you. is one of your excitatory neurotransmitters. Um, So it helps you with your get up and go, your fight or flight response. And like I said, all of those neurotransmitters do a whole lot more than what I pointed out. But those are the the ones that we focus on a lot in in psychology. Um, For example, serotonin has 17 different, there are 17 different types of serotonin receptors. And each one of those serotonin receptors does something a little bit different. So... It's not just as simple as saying it does this and this this alone. All righty, everybody. Well, have a great day, and I will see you on Thursday. Oh, um, yes, depression can correlate to the aging process um, in some ways. And also, if you look at people as they age, you look at their circadian rhythms, they sleep less, and you know sometimes they get into a, a weird rhythm with their sleep hormones change for men and women. Um, So there's a lot to be considered from a biopsychosocial diagnostic perspective. All right, everybody, have a great day. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode.